You're listening to Marcus Sahaba Online Radio Podcast. Welcome to another edition of Awasail Al-Aram Asadika. Truthful news and Alhamdulillah, we welcome you with a hearty assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. We'll try and keep it current uh, this evening with uh, many uh, issues coming through. George Galloway and friends, uh, you know, as they have the finger on the pulse. So we'll be starting off with uh, George having a discussion with uh, Brian uh, Berlectic, who is a geopolitical analyst and the founder of the New Atlas. And as the show progresses, we'll try and get in the latest uh, news uh, that's coming through with him and his friends. And uh, we will highlight it uh, this evening. So I want you to sit back and uh, bismillah. Enjoy. Recent guests on Moats is a former U.S. Marine. He's a geopolitical analyst and founder of the New Atlas, which is a great title and a great publication because we are actually in an era in which a new atlas is being drawn. And Brian analyzes it better than almost anyone anywhere in the world. I'm very glad he's back on the show. Brian, thanks for uh, joining us. Um, let's talk first, if we can, about the significance of the Chinese initiative over the Ukraine war. Um, I presume, given the closeness of the relationship between China and Russia, that Russia has given its blessing uh, to this effort. I presume, given that Zelensky is a puppet of the United States, that uh, he was told by the U.S. he would have to take the call. Does this mean that peace is about to break out, in your view? First of all, thank you so much for having me on. It's an honor and a pleasure. Uh, regarding the, the Chinese communication with Ukraine, uh, China has always strived to live up to its adherence to the interna- to international law and to maintaining diplomacy. I, th- I think everybody can see quite clearly that what the United States is doing to Russia through Ukraine is the same process the U.S. is doing to China through its, its own island province of Taiwan. Uh, so I, I think China wants to play a constructive role if possible. I, I don't think there's anyone anywhere who wants this conflict to, to last longer, at least not in Moscow, not in Beijing. Uh, so I think they would they would like to keep that door open, the door open to diplomacy, even if it is entirely unlikely that Ukraine, uh, the regime in Kiev, will walk through it. You think it's entirely unlikely? Uh, Because I'm wondering uh, that uh, Xi Jinping would not take this move, would not take this big step, appointing an envoy, dispatching him to Kiev and so on, if he didn't have some indication uh, that something good might come of it. I think that's a good point. Uh, I, I think ultimately things will be determined on the battlefield. But once that, that determination happens, this door has already been opened by Beijing and then the process can begin. There, So they're laying the groundwork for something that can possibly happen. Uh, everyone is waiting for this Ukrainian spring offensive. Now it looks like possibly a, a summer or fall offensive. And if it goes wrong, I can't really see what what, a, what other option Ukraine has but to uh, explore the possibilities of diplomacy. Well, let's you and I explore it. Uh, I uh, listed uh, why, if I were running Russia, would be my 
bottom lines. Uh, earlier in the show, I don't know if you heard them, but the, uh, the obvious one that everyone would expect is that uh, Ukraine is a neutral country, that it does not join NATO, but neither does NATO infiltrate Ukraine. In other words, a NATO-free zone. That would be, it would seem to me, an obvious top line. Uh, then the issue of the self-determination of the Russian-speaking people in the east and south of the country. It's inconceivable to me that Russia would hand these people back to the tender mercies of, uh, of the regime in Kiev. Uh, the, uh, the issue then uh, would boil down to, uh, to Crimea. Uh, there is no possibility, is there, that Russia will ever cede sovereignty of uh, Crimea. It was only ever a paper transaction, uh, a drunken night in the 1950s by Khrushchev, uh, who handed over Crimea from Russia to Ukraine when they were both members of the USSR. It's part of the strategic uh, patrimony of uh, the Russian state and will never be handed back. I absolutely agree. And even in 2013, before the U.S. overthrew the elected government of Ukraine and, and then thus taking Ukraine's sovereignty from it, the U.S. government funded a poll that found that uh, the majority of people in Crimea identify as either Russian or Crimean. A very small minority identified as Ukrainian. And even at that time, before the, the violent coup that overthrew the elected government, almost 25% wanted to join the Russian Federation. And then obviously in 2014, they had many more reasons to want to join the Russian Federation. So there's there's no doubt, and even U.S. government-funded polls uh, indicate that the people of Crimea want to be part of the Russian Federation, and it, it would be an injustice to them to hand them back over to Ukraine for, for what reason and to what end. Uh, and then the, the other regions, the Russian-speaking regions that Russia now controls, uh, to hand them back to Ukraine, I, I think it would be uh, very difficult to, to fathom. And it all ultimately boils down to the fact that the U.S. has captured Ukraine and it is using it as a proxy against Russia. And this is unacceptable to Russia, its national security interests, its self-preservation. And that's ultimately what's going to drive whatever diplomacy unfolds. And unfortunately, as long as it is a proxy war that the U.S. is fighting at the expense of Ukrainian blood, not American blood, the U.S. has no incentive to stop this proxy war. And so that, that's why, I, unfortunately, I believe a lot of this is going to have to be settled on the battlefield first. But at least China is laying the groundwork for the, for the possible follow-on of diplomacy. And the call, uh, he had earlier said that he would no longer take a call from China because it didn't come earlier. He took the call. Would he have cleared that with Washington, that he would take the call, that he would exchange envoys with Beijing? Uh, absolutely. Nothing happens in Ukraine unless uh, the U.S. gives the okay. And uh, ultimately, this is a U.S. client regime in power in Kiev. 
This is a, essentially a U.S. proxy war being waged against Russia. It's not a war between Russia and Ukraine. And uh, I think China resisted uh, calling sooner because it would have just played into the hands of the U.S. and this narrative that they're trying to create that Russia is isolated uh, on the international stage, that everyone is talking with Kiev and it's, it's Russia standing alone. But, but also they do have an obligation to diplomacy and international law. So they're, they're playing a balancing game here. Uh, and they also are fully aware that they are next. After Russia, the U.S. is coming after China. Well, no one who saw uh, the crowd around Mr. Lavrov in the Security Council uh, at the UN this week could possibly imagine that Russia is in any way isolated. Mr. Lavrov is by far and away the most popular international diplomat in the whole world, possibly that there has ever been. Uh, his press conferences, his speech at the UN was as fine a speech as I have ever seen delivered at the uh, UN. So their isolation of Russia is not going at all well. But let's, uh, let's switch to the Chinese track, because I'll argue that the attempts to isolate China are now not going well either. We had, of course, the famous now visit of little Macron uh, to China and the statements that he made there and since he came back. But lo and behold, uh, a man misnamed cleverly, uh, who is now the Foreign Secretary of Great Britain, made a statement today uh, which must have caused horror in Washington. He said that to, for Britain to declare a new Cold War with China uh, would be uh, against Britain's national interest and that Britain has no intention of doing so. Appearing to side with Macron uh, on the, this uh, set of issues rather than Washington. And of course, we had the uh, busy terminus uh, of uh, Beijing over the last few weeks with the president of Brazil there, with the prime minister of, uh, of Germany there, then the foreign minister of Germany there. All roads lead to Beijing, so it's the U.S. that is looking isolated over China, isn't it? It is the United States, and it's also anyone who is going to side with them in this growing tension. Unfortunately, while it is very true that it is not in anyone's interest in Europe to side against China, it was never in Europe's interest to side against Russia. Look look at what Germany, for example, has done to itself. And I, I thought it uh, implausible that they would do so much damage to themselves, and yet here we are, and this is what they've done. They've allowed uh, the Nord Stream pipelines to be destroyed. They haven't said a single word about it, and there's no sign that they're going to relent in supporting the U.S. proxy war against Russia and Ukraine. So uh, it's illogical for Europe to then move on to China and side with the United States in, in yet another conflict, uh, and, and yet it was illogical for them to do this with Russia. So I, I hope that they're starting to come to their senses uh, but uh, unfortunately, their, their track record is to say these things, but uh, not really actually follow through with them. 
Now, uh, you'll have been following, as, as I am, uh, the BRICS, uh, the, the existing BRICS uh, are now bigger than the G7. Um, and there's a queue a mile long waiting to join the BRICS. Uh, we, we're going to run out of alphabet to describe the BRICS. Uh, there's, I think, 14 or more applicants uh, for membership uh, of the BRICS and others who want to be associate uh, members uh, of the BRICS. This is a profound rewriting of the atlas to, uh, to refer to your wonderful new atlas. Absolutely. This is the rise of multipolarism. And this is what is driving U.S. foreign policy at the moment, this attempt to put it back into the bottle, to reassert U.S.-led unipolar power over the planet. And, and it's manifesting itself in this proxy war in Ukraine against Russia, buildup of tension with China or the island province of Taiwan, and uh, conflicts and interference all along the periphery of both Russia and China. And so we're, we're watching the world pivot away from this old way of doing business, and which in many ways, these nations were, were unsatisfied with, with this arrangement. So in many ways, they were coerced into it. Now there's an alternative, and they're choosing it. And it, it seems like for, for the United States, the window of opportunity either is closing or has already closed. And we're watching what is foreign, U.S. foreign policy. It really is seeming more like desperation. Well, lastly, uh, Africa is, of course, uh, an increasingly important uh, part of uh, the world economic uh, map, uh, possibly the richest of all continents, a billion people, uh, increasingly uh, acting in, in, in concert uh, with each other, uh, shaking off the, the, the colonial chains, uh, in a way that hasn't been seen since independence, or popping up in the Sudan. What's going on there, Brian? It's very difficult to tell exactly what's going on in Sudan, but what we have watched for generations is the, the United States and Europe, uh, colonialism, whether it was old-fashioned colonialism or neocolonialism, using divide and conquer to keep all of the nations of Africa down. And this is what has allowed the West to basically loot the continents, again, for generations. And now we see China and Russia coming in. They have a different approach. They're investing in these countries. They are working with these people, not imposing themselves upon these people. And uh, we can see what's happening. Nations are rising up. They're becoming stronger, more unified, and less susceptible to U.S. and European interference. And so they will do anything possible to, again, reassert this paradigm. And they're doing this through divide and conquer. And they, and they do it by sparking conflicts. Uh, we have to be very careful when we look at these conflicts. We really have to follow the money, look carefully at the associations of the, the different leaders of the various factions uh, to really make sure we understand whose side uh, is, is who on, but that ultimately instability seems only to serve the West. It has served the West. It's their method of operation. And I believe that it still serves their interest to destabilize 
the, the investments and the stability that both Russia and China are trying to bring. Follow the money, follow the biolabs of all the places in the world where America could have put another biolab. One of them is in the Sudan. Brian Belatek, thank you as House political commentator and founder of the MCSC network. Maybe you'll tell us what that network is. Nico, welcome back to the mother of all talk shows. First of all, tell us, what is the MCSC network? So MCSC actually just stands for Mikasa and Sukasa because my last name is House. And I, whenever I started the, my show, uh, Mikasa and Sukasa, the podcast, it was to make it so, so that the average person could understand, you know, the complexities of politics uh, in the most implicit way possible. Almost like you're talking to a family member at a, at a dinner table about what happened that day in your life. And that was the goal. And so far, I think we've done a pretty good job achieving it. You know, some people like to overcomplicate politics, but I think you and I know things are a lot simpler uh, than they than, than, yeah. than the world or the mainstream media make them out to be. They are. Uh, and here's one simple uh, truth, because Joe Biden told us it during the last election campaign. If you are not voting Joe Biden, you ain't black. Uh, that didn't go <laughs> down all that well. Uh, <laughs> he really did say that. Uh, he, uh, he, he shuffled himself back onto uh, the front foot and announced that he's running again. How has that gone down? amongst the American public? Um, well, the majority of Democrats actually don't want him to run again. So obviously it's not going that well. But I think there's a few frustrating aspects that you have to address. One, the fact that Bernie Sanders has already came out and endorsed him. That's problematic. Um, not that I was expecting Bernie to run against him, but he's not even listening or hearing out other candidates, which means that once again, despite labeling himself as an independent, he's going to march lockstep with the, the Democratic Party, uh, not giving himself any separation. And once again, making you question if he ever really truly considered himself an independent Two, the fact that they have decided to completely and totally ban debates for the primary, uh, which seems like now that will make, make the Republican and the Democratic Party alike and that they will not be holding primary debates. And apparently they're trying to even stop general election debates. So this could be the first election where we have literally zero debates uh, for the entire election, which once again is problematic because the Democrats' own party, pre the president's own party, doesn't actually seem to believe that he's fit to be president, yet they don't want to hear other voices. And then three, uh, I just find it really crazy to, to think that people believe that the U.S. Uh, is a democracy when a, a guy who literally can't remember what he had for breakfast uh, is probably going to win president again. And it's not really a question in anybody's mind whether or not that's going to be the case. No, no matter how impressive RFK or Marianne Williamson might consider themselves to be or their voters might consider themselves to be, at the end of the day, Dominion, who, by the way, owns 7 percent of Fox News, um, is still in charge of the election. And we have not really substantively addressed what we saw take place where we just saw the most technically the most popular presidential incumbent, incumbent in history who increased his voter base amongst all demographics except for white men get beat by a guy who literally had to put in his teeth that morning before uh, giving his his uh, his winning speech. So, like, it's it's a problem. I feel like it's a problem uh, across the board that. We're basically in a satire, except for their actual lives and international policies on the line. And we're not really taking this matter seriously enough. 
It is a satire. That is a brilliant line. Uh, and But if it was a satire, you would turn away from it because there's only so long you can laugh at a guy in the state that Joe Biden is in. Uh, in the end, you would turn away and say, this is elder abuse. What kind of a family has this man got that is putting him up uh, to suffer the ridicule not just of Americans, but the whole world. I've got to tell you, Nico, the, these videos of uh, poor old Joe wandering around lost, even in his own garden, uh, uh, unable to uh, know where to stand, even when there's a big giant X where he's supposed to stand, reading out <laughs> the stage instructions. Uh, when, you know, he gets to the end of the line and it says, turn the page. He reads out, turn the page. Uh, he reads out, uh, stop here. Uh, yeah. this, this is satire. To be fair, though, Kamala isn't that much is, different, right? It is, it is cruel, but to be fair, Kamala doesn't seem to be all that much different when it comes to the mental gaze. I don't know if you saw her recent speech, but she was, I actually don't even know what she was talking about. She's like, it's important in this moment that we really think about this moment. And we contextualize the moment that we're in with contextualization. I'm like, hold on. I know that we don't want Biden to be president. We believe that his age is causing some mental deterioration. But Kamala is like 50 years younger than this man. What is going on? It's, it's almost like they're sharing the same brain, unfortunately, which once again doesn't bode well for the American people. But I think that you would agree, being an international citizen yourself, this doesn't bode well for the world. We're on, we are on the cusp of World War III. The, the U.S. government has made that pretty clear that that is their goal. And with BRICS aligning in the way that they are making the economic moves internationally, making the partnerships internationally, uh, I don't see, like, we, we know that Biden is a puppet, and we know who the puppet masters are. And we know that when circumstances align, when they believe that there is legitimate, uh, a legitimate competition for them economically around the world, they just go straight to war war. This is, history has proven this already. And we are on the cusp of that right now, and Biden is a puppet who will will not push back on that. That's what we need to be really talking about more. Um, the gates are funny, but like the gates, in my in my opinion, are just it just just displays how much control he's really he really doesn't have over the situation, which means we don't have control over the situation, and we know what the powers that be do uh, whenever they don't whenever they feel like they're not in control economically of the international community, and right now they don't have control. Uh, about Kamala Harris. Uh, um... I call her laughing gas. Uh, she, she doesn't seem to know when to laugh and when to stop laughing. Uh, she laughs at the most inappropriate things, times, and can't stop laughing. Uh, and I'm not sure, you know, you're too young to know, but Richard Nixon had a vice president called Spiro Agnew, who was such a kook that Nixon used to say, no one will ever shoot me with this guy next in line. And Joe Biden's more or less in the same situation, uh, that uh, if you don't want me, you're going to get her. Uh, as the, how did the Democratic Party get to this? How do you go from, from Jack Kennedy to Joe Biden and Kamala Harris? What changed in well, the Democratic Party? I, I would say that the Democratic Party is the only party that you can literally fail upwards. In fact, I would say it's almost a prerequisite to be a abysmal failure in what you do uh, in order to become successful in the party. Whether you're talking about Hillary Clinton, who really 
had no political experience whatsoever, and then they gave her the second most powerful position in the world. When I say political experience, I mean like actually running the show. They they like she didn't have any experience. Um, and then she was secretary of state and then they were like, actually, she's the most qualified person ever. I was like, I don't really, I think our definitions of qualified have drastically changed over the years. And then you have Joe Biden who had to drop out of a, 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 at least a couple of races for plagiarizing speeches because he couldn't write his own. And then for, you know, being a segregationist. And I mean, the dude, he's only made horrible bills that have, have turned this country inside out, whether you want to talk about the 94 crime bill or the telecommunications act that nobody talks about in 1996. I mean, the guy has been horrible. He's been unpopular. And that was part of the reason they put him beside Obama because they knew he would never really challenge Obama's popularity in that regard. And so Obama would keep an authority while Biden can quote unquote help guide foreign policy, which really just means tell Obama what the establishment wants. And even though he's been an abysmal failure, the man ends up, obviously, as president. And they say that he's the one with the experience. And I'm like, I feel like when y'all say experience, I mean, that means like a person is stupid enough to be controlled. And therefore, you want him to be president, right? Because you don't have to like, think about Kamala. That Kamala literally was so unpopular that she, by the end of the week after Tulsa destroyed her campaign, she went from having like 93% of the black vote to 2% of the black vote, couldn't even make it to the primary to get a single vote. So they were like, you know what, we got to pair her with Biden be, to make him more popular. Like, no, I think we just established she isn't popular at all. Well, like, that's what we actually mean, though. We mean she isn't popular, and therefore we should pair them together because they need us to maintain the air of popularity. They need us to be taken seriously, and that is how we will keep them in line because their legacies matter more to them, more to them than anything. And they will try to maintain their legacy by doing what we say. How do you think uh, Kennedy has done in the opening week or so of his uh, campaign? It looks pretty impressive to me. He looks impressive. Um, I, I enjoyed his interview on Tucker Carlson. I, 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 I strongly agree with a lot of his takes on, on the COVID situation um, You know, prior to this. Uh, I, I appreciate his take on Ukraine and Russia as well. I do find, feel like it was, it's a little weird that he called Joe Biden his friend when addressing the whole situation about not having debates. And the reason I say that, I know people were saying, well, you got to play this game. And the, listen, guys, I don't know if you, you, you've noticed, <laughs> World War III is about to start. <laughs> we don't need anybody pretending to be friends with Joe Biden or anybody in the establishment. If there was ever a time to go scorch Earth, it's now. Because if you don't, the Earth might literally be scorched in a couple of years. That's how I feel about that situation. I understand the, the, the goal, but we saw the whole my good friend Joe Biden with Bernie Sanders. And how did that turn out? We need somebody to show that they are willing to fight. The one advantage that Trump can always use uh, was the fact that he was willing to go at the establishment Republicans in a way that independents like uh, uh, Bernie Sanders, or even I would make the argument, Tulsi Gabbard didn't even go at Joe Biden. They didn't go at the legacy guys like they like like Trump went after the legacy Republicans, and Trump won. And yet we still have not gotten that leftist champion, um, like like or at least populist leftist champion, like the right got their populist conservative champion. And I would make the arguments because well they they're not willing to go scorch earth and this 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 uh this this politeness that we are seeing, uh, it, it isn't going to bode well because now you're stuck in that. And the moment that you try to deviate that from that, from that even a little bit, everyone starts attacking you as, as this mean person, you know, this toxic person. Whereas if you just come out with guns blazing, 
I mean, because they've had no problem doing that with. What have you got to lose? Yeah, well, uh, exactly. Trump had nothing to lose, and and it worked. Now you mentioned you have to Tucker play like Carlson. That, we're the, about to lose everything. Yeah, yeah, we're you about do. to lose everything. You you mentioned Tucker Carlson. Uh, a few things came as a surprise to me about that story. The first was his one point six million dollars a month wages. Uh, uh, he's good, but uh, that's a lot of money to read an author. <laughs> uh, um, <laughs> uh, but the second was that Fox were ready to ditch a guy whose ratings are ten times the ratings of uh, of any of the centrist uh, commentators, the Rachel Maddows, the CNN. First of all, I just want to say it's crazy that Tucker Carlson never had to learn a jump shot, but he's out here getting NBA money. That's wild. Um, that's impressive in and of itself. Um, I would also like to say that I don't find it coincidental that he has RFK on, obviously, and we know where he stands on, on vaccines. He has on, uh, he, he had this conversation and he even kind of, kind of sarcastically included Fox News in this conversation, but he had this conversation about how the networks uh, on be, at the behest of their advertisers push these vaccines on people. Uh, what they didn't, what people don't seem to realize though is that uh, Pfizer is 15% of, of, of uh, no, excuse me, Dominion is 15% of his advertisement, which is crazy because it's mean lawsuit just happened and the settlement just happened and he's fired. But also, Pfizer is one of the top advertisers for Fox News and people don't know it. <laughs> so it, it literally could be all of the above. It's the fact that, and the fact that Rupert Murdoch uh, actually is all in for DeSantis. And even though Tucker hasn't been 100% Trump, he's been willing to call out when some of the uh, he's been willing to call some of the inequities that Trump and Bernie Sanders and a Tulsi Gabbard and can RFK obviously candidates like that have faced. And so if you're if if the tables are being uh, tipped in the favor of Ron DeSantis over Trump in some type of unfair way, obviously Tucker is the type of person that will call that out. Tucker has is is, is seemingly paid the, paying the price of being on the right side when it comes to the, the grander issues i rarely agree with tucker carlson when it comes to social justice issues i don't really agree with him when it comes to the issue of china but really outside of those issues when it comes to the, the big league politics when it comes to calling out the establishment when it comes to the russia ukraine war when it comes to the issue on vaccines and mandates um and the way that candidates on both sides of the fence whether it be in the democratic party or republican party have been treated by the establishment tucker has been right and it seems like he's paying the price for being on the right side of history uh, more often than not over the last two or three years. Nico House, as always, a pleasure to talk to you on the shift are potentially discernible. Once upon a time, such an agreement as this would have been made at Camp David, would have been made on the White House lawn, but this one was made in Beijing. All roads, it would appear, now lead to Beijing, at least if you're looking to end conflicts, solve problems, rather than start them or accentuate them. A steady stream of prime ministers and presidents have been headed for Beijing even since this historic agreement. So we're looking today at what it means, what it means for the Arabs, what it means for the Muslims, and what it means for the New World Order. A New World Order based on a Eurasian 
reality, where most of the wealth, most of the commodities that the world needs are, of course, located. Saudi Arabia joining the BRICS. Who would have seen that happening, especially alongside their once formidable foe in Iran? All kinds of changes are underway. And I am joined, as always, by a distinguished panel of experts. I'm merely the enthusiastic amateur. Let me introduce the first of as me, uh, the uh, implications of this shift. Absolutely. Tell me why. Absolutely. Because it, 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 it supported an argument which I presented at Chatham House 15 years ago, at 2008, when American professor Joseph Ney came to speak uh, in promotion of his book, The American Century. And I told him... Whatever happened to the American century? Well, uh, that was it. I told him that America is receding willy-nilly and has to adapt to a new order to be more comprehensive, more, more uh, inclusive. Uh, and he told me that America takes that into consideration, uh, but the American way. Obviously, uh, China uh, has been uh, practicing politics the Chinese way, uh, and uh, as it is called in the Western media, the reluctant superpower, once. Uh, it is not as reluctant anymore, but feels that it is time to present itself uh, and become more inclusive than the West, and they provide an alternative world order to which even the West and America are invited on a Chinese table. I spend a fair bit of time in Beijing. The hotels are chock-a-block with visiting delegations, presidents, heads of the European Commission, prime ministers, uh, people from east, west, south and north are all heading to Beijing. What is it about their diplomacy that is proving so successful? The trade and the projects they presented to third world countries and mainly in Africa has proven to be uh, something to remain. And uh, they won the acceptance of the people of countries in which they worked. Uh, they did not use uh, a snobby approach or appear to be the upper hand, but we are working with you. Uh, they even sent uh, Chinese people to live there and intermarry and settle there, which was seen by some as some kind of invasion in disguise. But obviously there are so many Indians uh, in the world and there are so many Chinese, Chinatown in many capitals, so why not Chinatown in an African country as well? Uh, they have presented development projects, they have taught people how to use their resources effectively and produce things to their need, not supplying them with the Coca-Cola uh, and other luxury items which they don't, they don't know about, let alone to need. Uh, 
Yes, the Chinese have, have built a base to, to, to present themselves, and they choose the time uh, because of something relates to their own. Uh, they thought if they challenge America, while America is bogged down in the Ukraine, uh, that will be a good time. Uh, and also, a second point is that if America and the NATO win in the Ukraine against Russia, that may be uh, some kind of rehearsal for a similar act in Taiwan. Indeed so. Uh, broadcasting legend Huda al-Rashid, the first woman ever. Um, let's take a look at who's been trying to make some kind of deal work in the past. It's been America with several talks that have taken place in Iraq. I think there was at least five of those that have taken place over the past couple of years. And they've achieved focus. And I think that by and large, one of the main reasons for that is because America does not have a working relationship with many of the countries of the region, Iran being a prominent example of that. They just do not have any relationship with Iran whatsoever to their own cost. They haven't been able to make any progress in that sense. China, on the other hand, builds working relationships with all sides and has a, a policy of neutrality, by and large, particularly when it looks at regions like the Middle East. So they're willing to work with the Saudis, they're willing to work with the Iranians as well, as well as everyone else. And by surprise, surprise, it's the Chinese that have come out with this shock deal that have actually been able to find a way to please both the Iranians and the Saudis. And that's something which America would never have been able to achieve now or before, because the fact of the matter is America sees the region as property which it needs to dominate. And that's a policy which they've been enacting on for decades now. And it's reached a stage where I think Saudi Arabia and Iran, who... They are. They are. They see each other as enemies. Let's be. Let's get real here. They see each other as regional enemies fighting for control of that area of their territory. And I think now that even the Saudis are looking at their historical ally, the United States, and are saying these guys can't sort us out. They are not making any progress for what we want in the region. And actually, Saudi Arabia is in a very awkward position where on the two wings of the Arab world, Iraq and Yemen, they're, they're, they're not achieving their uh, geopolitical uh, and, uh, uh, objectives at all. So I think now we've reached a position where Iran and Saudi Arabia see how bad the region has become. It's their region. They need to see some kind of progress made. They can't leave it the way it is, and it's actually getting worse. So they've decided, that, well, if America's not going to fix it for us in the West, they're going to look east. And that's exactly what's happened. So I think the biggest losers here, without a doubt, is Washington and also Israel. Perhaps we'll talk about that in a bit. We will, for sure. Let's talk uh, first, though, to Carl Ja, who is Chinese ethnically, but lives in Indonesia and is speaking to us from Japan. We certainly get around here on Kalimahara. Carl, welcome. Thank you. In the recent past, even, China was concentrating on economic matters, on trade matters, uh, albeit through its Belt and Road Initiative, through infrastructural investment in all kinds of uh, countries and indeed continents. But it was very much a reluctant superpower when it came to big power politics. What has changed? What has propelled them? into the front line of deal makers. And you couldn't get a much bigger deal than the one between Iran and Saudi Arabia. Yeah, um, China has long pursued what's called the non-interference policy uh, abroad. And so it's to everyone's surprise, this, this time China broke a major peace deal 
between Iran and Saudi Arabia. And this uh, peace deal have, would have significant impact on the Middle East because, as we know, um, there has been a long-running conflict. And it, it's, but by China inserting itself in, into the Middle East peace process, um, what I see is uh, China is paving the way to play ever more important role in the Middle Eastern politics. Can we expect now China to be more prominent in other parts of Middle East political problems, other conflicts, other issues? Um, I, I, I think you will, China will be more present in the Middle Eastern politics more than ever before. Um, previously, China have adopted a rather low profile uh, a, a diplomatic approach where it emphasized on bilateral relations, country to country relations. So China, for example, will have uh, a conversation with Iran, but also have a conversation with Saudi Arabia. But much of the negotiation is kept under wraps. Um, it's not di disclosed to the public. Uh, by taking a very public stance, by um, acting as a broker of this peace deal, China is showing its willingness to get involved in the Middle East. Uh, that's something we haven't seen before. The deal brokered in Beijing between Tehran and Riyadh is obviously the high point of their political role as a frontline superpower in international relations. Do you think that this is the beginning of something important, that it will be followed by other Chinese interventions in other issues? Yes, yes. What, what, what we have seen is China is pursuing a more assertive foreign policy. Um, it, it's no longer uh, the, the Deng Xiaoping era when China's uh, motto is uh, taking a low profile, biting your time, uh, biting your time, hiding your strength. I don't think China is hiding its strength anymore because China's strength is... Uh, obvious for everyone um, for everyone to see and, and now China will leverage its strength to play a more active role in on the world stage including uh, acting as a peacemaker I, I think this is very positive is this the beginning of the end for the United States as the superpower broker in the Middle East uh, if it's not the beginning of the end, is at least past the end of the beginning? This, what we see is a beginning of an end. It's a beginning of an end of U.S. hegemony in Middle East and, and also on global stage as a whole. But we shouldn't be too, uh, we shouldn't jump the gun to assume this, this is it. The U.S. hegemony is over. It is, I think it's that. Um, what we're seeing is the, in the very beginning stage of a U, the declining U.S. influence um, on, the middle, on the world stage, but particularly in the Middle East. Some of the fruits of the agreement are already visible, albeit this time brokered by Russia. We now have a situation where Saudi Arabia is repairing its relations with Syria and other Gulf uh, countries are... Uh, openly stating that it's time for Syria to return to its Arab family, as if it was Syria that left the Arab family rather than kicked out of the family home. Um, I have to remind uh, 
uh, the, the listeners that United States is still still want to be involved and play a role in the Middle Eastern politics. That is why at this very moment, United States military is um, is carrying out activities in Syria, you know, against Iran and its allies. This is the very reason that U.S. decided to uh, to pick a fight at this particular juncture is precisely is because they seen that their role has been eclipsed by China in the Middle East. So U.S. wanted to um, they wanted to derail the peace process that had began uh, between between Iran and Saudi Arabia that was brokered by China. Uh, so I, I expect that U.S. will play more a role of a spoiler. Um, you will try to sabotage as much as he can the, the peace process that has begun. The U.S. policy in the Middle East has been to bludgeon Iran and reward Israel. Uh, quite plainly, that has not worked, has neither broken Iran, nor made Israel any more popular or accepted in the region, or able to subjugate even the people under its control any more uh, easily. Do you think the U.S. might now begin to wake up to the fact that its politics are just not working? Yeah, exactly. Um, what you make it clear for for the for the world at large to see that U.S. is is never uh, a factor for stability or peace, you know, whether in Middle East or elsewhere, and they are in fact a very uh, destabilizing element. And and the, 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 you know, plus right now U.S. is talking about supplying weapons to um, Azerbaijan uh, in effort to counter. Iran. Um, this this runs counter to the the, the the wish of the people in the region who want to see more peace and stability established. Um, I, I think um, uh, people are not being fooled uh, by the rhetorics of the United States by claiming that they uh, they are the world leader and plan to play uh, a role as a peace uh, broker. Uh, that's obviously not true. At I'm heartened to see that China taking the leadership position to insert itself and to to help to bring uh, a two very important states, Iran and Saudi Arabia, together. It's very encouraging beginning, and I, I hope to see more. Robert, the, he raised the question you implicitly did about China becoming more involved on other Middle East issues, and of course, the great the elephant sitting in the corner is, is the Israel-Palestine question. Now, China, for all its protestations of non-interference, has been a consistent supporter of Palestinian rights. That must be an additional worry for Israel. The alliance between Iran and Saudi Arabia is bad enough, but that it was brokered by an explicitly pro-Palestinian power in China, as opposed to the United States, must be an additional concern for them. Yes, I think Israel's very worried about this, and I think that it's worried about it for a number of reasons. Uh, I think China 
doesn't see Israel in the same way that Israel is seen in the Western world. This kind of myth that's been created or based on Israeli propaganda that Israel always existed. Now they're even saying that the Palestinian people do not and have never existed, for example. I don't think China sees the, the, the situation quite like that. They see it more from a normal perspective, quite frankly, which is that the Palestinian people are an oppressed people and that Israel is a Western colonialist project in Arab and Muslim lands. So with that said, they're willing to look at it in a, in a way which perhaps the Arabs would see as more favourable to them, and then of course will help them build relationships. But the fact of the matter is that I think Israel has looked at what's happened here, and they had a plan in place of normalisation with the Arabs, and Netanyahu has admitted this on camera. His policy has always been to deal with the Palestinian issue later. Let's go and deal with the situation of building relations with the other Arab countries in the region, something which uh, they're now making gains on. Under Trump, they did as well. Uh, and now the situation has changed somewhat because they were hoping that Saudi Arabia might join on to this. Now, all of a sudden, they're making deals with Iran, with the Chinese. What's going to happen next? And I think that Israel, again, is very angry at the fact that they have the, uh, uh, a guy in Washington, President Sleepy Joe Biden, who doesn't seem to know what day of the week it is. He's talking to people that aren't there, shaking hands with sh his shadow or something. I don't know, falling off bicycles. And the fact of the matter is that in level of incompetence, the question around whether he's even competent enough to run a country like America is is affecting his allies as well. Other countries are starting to look at Joe Biden and Washington in the same way that local press is looking at it. This is a mess. This guy is perhaps one of the worst presidents that's ever run um, from, from the White House. And I think that now Israel is really panicking about what to do going forward. What is their plan going forward? Because it looks like they're actually starting to lose some ground now. Much more of this coming up after for a minute. It isn't just the Iran-Saudi deal. It's that both Iran and Saudi Arabia are applying to join the BRICS. Both are applying to join the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, where half of the world's wealth, more than half of the world's population, is to be found. Uh, Russia has brokered uh, uh, a restoration of relations between Saudi Arabia and Syria. Uh, it is literally all changing, and all changing so fast we can barely keep up with it. The Israelis would be right to be bemused at the speed of events, wouldn't they? The Gulf Arabs have been resenting the fact that America has been trying to frighten them by so-called Iranian threat over decades. Uh, one of them, which I can remember, is American naval patrols uh, guarding Kuwaiti uh, oil tankers going out of the Gulf, for example, uh, to protect against Iranian aggression, so to speak. Uh, Saudi Arabia and the Gulf countries, uh, they have now come around to realize, and some of them admitted, uh, that they were pressed to buy American arms uh, to face the danger of Iranian aggression, so to speak, as well, over decades in order to help the American Treasury uh, and to uh, suck more of their money. Uh, the Arab order itself have been managed by America 
not only to create the divide between Iran and Arab countries, but between Arab countries themselves. And uh, with, within the minds and the hearts of many Arab leaders who may not like to admit it, they felt shackled into the American cart, so to speak. And uh, now they have been exploring uh, their freedom to deal with an alternative without offending America to the effect of endangering them. Uh, they see America as a sinking huge uh, aircraft carrier. If you come close to it as a small boat, you will sink before it sinks. But if you offend it, it still has the power, the power to sink you. So you have to play safe and be careful not to endanger your position and manage the relationship with all parties and move outward from the American domain as much as you can because America does not want allies. China so far wants allies. So with whom do you go? The Arabs feel much safer in a, in a multipolar world where there is a balance. America does not want the balance. Uh, Madame Huda, what does it mean for the Arabs, at least from the Levant to the Gulf? Well, obviously, there's, uh, there's already moves being made regarding um, rebuilding ties with Syria, for example. So we could see Syria being welcomed back into the fold of uh, the Arab world politically, uh, and that's already beginning to happen. And again, other countries like Lebanon, Iraq, could they see a positive change as a result of positive uh, talks taking place between the Saudis and the Iranians? Because uh, normally the, the, the crux of the problems in those countries, political or military or whatever else, uh, tends to get pinned, locally at least, on the Cold War situation between Iran and Saudi Arabia. But obviously, I think it's naive of us to assume that America is going to take this sitting down the idea that China or Russia or anyone else is going to steamroll into the region and nudge the Americans out, the Israelis certainly won't like that. But hopefully in the short term and the long term, there will be some positive results of this, a move away from conflict towards dialogue, diplomacy and, uh, and resolution uh, building. And Dr. Abdullah, what about the Palestinians? Can they see any light at the end of the tunnel as a result of this? In the short term, I think they will continue to suffer because of the right-wing government in Israel and the inability of Arab countries to do something effective to end their misery. Yes, it, it will be to the benefit of the Palestinians, but uh, as Robert said, it will take time to materialize. America will not take it lying down. America still has influence, has its own people in key positions in the Middle East, in addition to those who are undercover all over the place. You don't know where the octopus reaches. Uh, so I expect some serious attempts to tear this agreement uh, before it materializes. Uh, but I think it is in the interest of all Arab countries in the Middle East and probably countries in the margin uh, like Turkey as well. It is in their interest that this agreement succeeds in order to put an end 
to uh, the American century. Yes, before I even really before properly got started, Madame Huda. Okay, we'll uh, leave it at that. And what uh, you know, we've learned uh, this evening is that the West needs uh, an unstable Africa for exploitation. And you know, looking at the satire of uh, international politics, uh, it's a web of lies uh, that we have been fed with uh, by media. You know, that is uh, run by American. Uh, you know, puppets and so forth. And then uh, we are in the cusp of World War Three. Joe Biden and Kamala Harris are like uh, Martin Jeff, they say. And, you know, they don't even know many things. Uh, the brains, hmm? they don't know what type of uh, programming they have about Allahu Alam. And also talk about, uh, you know, the... Uh, Africa trusts China and the Africans uh, and many other countries are showing a lot of faith in uh, Chinese mediation and so forth. And uh, the the nightmare for Israel and for U.S., you know, when there's mediation, when China is mediating in the Middle East. Uh, China also had uh, made it clear that it supports uh, the Palestinians. Now it's a broker of peace in the Middle East. And as I said, Israel is worried. And, uh, you know, before it was... Uh, America is to do the fear-mongering amongst the Arabs, forcing them uh, to buy arms and ammunition so that they uh, they could counteract the Iranian threat. So that is gone, and it seems as if, yeah, the whole uh, dynamic has changed there. I'd like to thank uh, Lucalo for great engineering, and uh, Jazakallah to you for tuning in from the team. And I till we meet you again, we bid you, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.